morning. Uh, this morning's reading, the first reading, is taken from Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 14, and that can be found on page 834 um, of the Church Bible. So that's Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 14, on page 834. While we turn there, let us be mindful of the fact that as we read these verses, this is our Bible, and this is the very word of the living God, breathed out by him and given to us to train us in all that is necessary for life and godliness. So from verse 1 then. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart, set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Our New Testament reading this morning is from 1 John, chapter 4, verse 7 to 12. And that's on page 870 of the Pew Bible. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. What a privilege to read God's word, especially over Christmas time. I think we'll, um, we'll light the Advent candle at the end of the sermon, Raymond, at the end, rather than just now. 
Good. Well, thank you, uh, Michelle and Dimitri. And uh, as you'll have noticed, there was a change in the first Bible reading, and uh, the reason for that will become clear in a few moments. But uh, for now, let's bow our heads. Let's ask the Lord to help us understand his word. Lord, we, we thank you for the privilege of opening your word and holding it in our hands. And we pray now that you would open our lives and hold them in your hands so that as we read about you in the pages of Scripture, our hearts may be warmed with a renewed awareness of your great love for us. Our minds may be filled with your truth and our lives may be equipped to serve and to glorify your name. We ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Good, well I hope you've got your Bibles open at 1 John chapter 4, the second reading. And let me start with a question. Um, How do we know what God is really like? How do we know that we're not praising and singing to a God who is actually no more than the product of our imagination? Why are we convinced that when we pray, uh, we haven't simply invented a God who meets our own deepest psychological needs? Now, these are very important questions, I think. Um, In the next week... Uh, Our non-Christian friends and family will be making their annual pilgrimage to church. These are precisely the sort of questions they'll be asking. How do we know that we know? The, uh, The Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw has a character in one of his plays who says, God made man in his own image and man has returned the compliment. He's saying that man has invented God. And of course there are many, many people who say that about the Christian faith. They're sceptical about our claims to know God. Um, And I suppose the way that some Christians talk, we can have some sympathy. Because there are some people, aren't there, who claim to have a special hotline to God. Um, who announce things with confidence about God's character that are actually no more than wishful thinking. They say things like, you know, well, I'm sure that God would never reject anybody. I'm sure that he would never punish anybody. I'm sure that he would never allow suffering. Of course, they might wish that these things were so, but they have no authority whatsoever for saying them. And then there are others, aren't there, who claim to have inside knowledge of God's plans. And so, to an unemployed friend, they'll say with great confidence, well, the Lord has told me that you're going to have a new job by Christmas. But when Christmas comes and goes and there's still no job, Well, the obvious conclusion is that the claim to know God was actually bogus. Now, it was people rather like that who had left the churches that John was writing to in this letter. 
these people claimed to have a special knowledge of God that other Christians didn't have. Of course, when they walked out, uh, the Christians who stayed behind were inevitably asking themselves, well, this is very unsettling. Am I the real thing? Is my relationship with God real? How do I know? So John wrote this letter to reassure them. We've seen before that in chapter 5, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So the purpose of this letter is to reassure us that our faith is real, that it it corresponds to a God who is really there, a God who speaks and who may be known in a personal relationship of love because he knows us and he loves us. Now I think it's really important to say that Because often, when people are looking for confirmation of the existence of God, they start looking in all the wrong places. So some people try to prove the existence of God by logic, as if we could uh, get to know God purely by the application of the human mind. Others uh, try to achieve the same thing by scientific knowledge. Uh, So think for a moment of uh, this pulpit. Uh, We could get to know it scientifically. Uh, We could weigh it. Uh, We could measure it. We could identify the wood that it's made from. Uh, We could familiarise ourselves with all the, the nicks and marks and scratches on it so that if we ever bump into it again, Uh, maybe perhaps in a second-hand furniture shop on Main Road Weinberg, we could say, my goodness me, there is the St Barnabas pulpit. It's a trivial example, but the point is that the pulpit cannot resist our investigation. It can't actually stop us knowing it. But you can't know God like that. If we could, then the very word God would be emptied of its meaning. He would no longer be infinite. He would be contained within my little mind. And of course, if my mind is the measure of God, well then I know I'm on the wrong track straight away. So friends, if we're not looking for logical certainty, and we're not looking for scientific proof, what are we looking for? Well, the Bible says that we're looking for personal encounter. It's actually the most enriching form of knowledge that there is. You know perfectly well that what enriches your life is not logical certainty or scientific data. No, it's your relationships. What enriches our lives are the people who love us, the people we love, and the friendships that we enjoy. All of us, Christian or not, are hungry for that kind of reality. And that's the reality that God promises to us. Because, you see, God reveals himself to us in words and actions. 
He's intervened in our world, in time and space history, doing things that are utterly unique and are proven historical facts. That is actually the basis upon which God comes to men and women today, speaking into our hearts and minds, showing us his love, and enabling us to experience it for ourselves. Now that is John's message for us this morning. And he summarises it for us in just three words. Uh, You'll find them at the end of verse 8 in your passage, where John says, God is love. Now I guess most people who've never even read a Bible have heard those words at some time or other. The question is, what do they actually mean? Is John simply saying, well... God is loving. Uh, That's true, of course. But John is actually saying something far, far bigger than that. He's saying that everything God does expresses his love. Love is the great reality at the heart of God's nature. He is never less than perfectly loving. But how do we know that? What does it mean for us? And to those questions in our passage this morning, John replies, look at the Holy Trinity. Look at the Holy Trinity. Now that's rather a surprising answer, isn't it? Um, I have to confess that it was at least two or three days into my study this week before I actually saw it in the text. But as we've already discovered... A great deal of John's teaching in this letter reflects the teaching of the Lord Jesus in the upper room the night before he died. And almost the last thing that Jesus spoke about to his disciples on that extraordinary occasion was the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. And so here, John says, if you want to know whether God loves you, you must look to the one God who is also three persons. And each person demonstrates God's love in a way that is utterly unique. So what can we learn? Well, three things. Firstly, please will you notice the Father's initiative. The Father's initiative. Come with me to verse 9. Verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. Now, quite obviously, the God that he's talking about here is the God for whom Jesus is the Son. So he's talking about the Father. Uh, Elsewhere, the Bible tells us that the Father loves all creation, everything from the largest planets down to the tiniest insects. They're all the object of his love. He cares for his universe and he provides for it. There's even a sense in which he loves rebellious sinners. Uh, That's why, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that the Father sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous 
without distinction. It's just one example of what the scholars call his common grace. But here, in our passage, John is speaking of the special love the Father has for his children. They've been in the spotlight, haven't they, ever since chapter 3, verse 1, when John said that we grasp how great the Father's love really is for his children, and when we do, it takes our breath away. And now, John gives us a fresh insight into this breathtaking love. He says that the Father looked down from heaven, he saw that we were spiritually dead and quite unable to help ourselves, and he seized the initiative by sending his Son into the world. He says it twice, once in verse 9, and then he says it again in verse 10. Now why does John do that? Well, for a start, he's emphasising that this is a historical fact. The Father sent the Son into our world at a particular point in history and people saw him. In fact, the evidence is so overwhelming that even most non-Christians actually accept it. Uh, in 2002, um, archaeologists discovered uh, a bone box in Jerusalem dating back to the first century. Uh, it has an inscription on it in Aramaic which says this, These are the bones of James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. Of course, the uh, archaeological world was... Uh, amazed and very excited about this discovery because the box was dated at around AD 60, which actually makes it the earliest inscription testifying to Jesus outside the documents of the New Testament. Inevitably, of course, there was a tremendous amount of heated discussion about whether the box was real or whether it was a recent forgery. But interestingly, in March this year, uh, a group of experts completed their scientific investigation and they pronounced the box to be genuine. In any event, at the time when it was found, uh, Time magazine published an article about the significance of the find. The article was written by an unbeliever, uh, which means that two sentences in his article really stand out. He says... Quote, almost no educated person these days doubts that Jesus really lived. Some accept it on faith, some on the basis of a brace of chroniclers, both Christian and Roman. Isn't that a striking statement for a non-Christian? Jesus is there in history. Every educated person accepts it. And John adds that Jesus' arrival on the stage of human history is proof of the Father's love. Now I say that because John especially emphasises the costliness of the Father's initiative. Uh, he says in verse 9, if you want to look at it, that he sent 
his one and only son. Now that phrase, one and only, is actually just one word in the original and it means one of a kind or utterly unique. The same word is used of Isaac in Hebrews chapter 11 to illustrate the extent of Abraham's faith when God tested him. Abraham's faith was such that when the command of God came, he was prepared to sacrifice his one and only son, the son that he'd been promised for so long. And so, in our passage this morning, we have the idea of a son who is uniquely precious and specially loved because he's the only one. And yet, God sent him into a hostile world on a rescue mission to reconcile us to the Father so we might live. That is love. And the implication for us, you see, is that if we're the Father's children, then we too will love. Just look again at verse 7, if you will. Dear friends, says John, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. So, can you see that we love not because we try to, but because it's the natural reflex of the Father's children? You see, just as biological children can't escape their genetic inheritance. In the same way, the real Christian cannot escape his or her spiritual inheritance either. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that we will always do it perfectly. No, we won't. But it does mean that if we are truly born of God, then there will be a determination within us to love other Christians that wasn't there before. And John emphasises that, doesn't he, by saying the same thing negatively in verse 9. This is really important. Verse 9. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. What he's saying, you see, is that a lack of love for other Christians means a lack of relationship with the God who is love. Because the true children of God bear the Father's likeness. Can't help it. But our experience of God's love isn't only the Father's initiative. Because secondly, it is also the Son's sacrifice. Come with me to verse 10. In verse 10, John gives us the true definition of love. This is love, he says, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, I think that most people today have a great deal of difficulty with this. Um, as far as they're concerned, the words love and sacrifice don't even belong in the same sentence. No doubt there are many, many reasons for that. 
but at least one of them has got to do with language. Because in English, we use the same word love to describe a whole variety of different relationships. And so it's hardly surprising if we often get them horribly mixed up uh, with painful consequences for ourselves and other people. But Greek, uh, the language of the New Testament, uses four different words, all translated by the same word, love, in English. And each word is saying something different. So, for example, uh, Greek uses the word eros to describe sexual love between a man and a woman in marriage. But that's not the word that John uses here. Then there's the word philia, which is talking about the love that is friendship or companionship. Uh, It appears about 25 times in the New Testament, but again, it's not the word that John is using here. Then there's another word which is about love between members of the same family. Uh, It's the word storge. Uh, It's the love that you see on birthdays or special occasions when the family comes together. But once again, it's not the word that John uses here. Now, the word that John uses here is the word agape. Uh, Most of us have heard it at some time or other. And it's by far the most common word for love in the New Testament. John actually uses it more than 40 times in this letter alone. What does it mean? It means love for the undeserving despite disappointment and rejection. Let me say that again. This agape love means love for the undeserving despite disappointment and rejection. Now this, my friends, is the love that God has for us. It's the love that God has for you and me this morning. And you can see that quite clearly in verse 10. Because God's love is not a response to our love for him. This is love, says John, not that we loved God, no, no, but he loved us. You see, God has decided to love people who do not love him, who don't want to love him, and who in reality are his enemies. And in spite of that, God says, I will love you and I will prove my love by sending my son as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. Now the language of uh, of atonement, of course, is not new to us in 1 John. Uh, He spoke about it back in chapter 2. But what John is doing here is showing us why the truth test is so important. Do you remember last week, uh, he was saying that Christianity begins with a right understanding of Jesus. If you don't understand who Jesus is, you can't be a Christian. And here his point is that the truth test isn't simply an intellectual issue. He's saying that everything in Christianity depends upon what you make of the cross. He's asking us, Can you see 
that God provided the perfect sacrifice on the stage of human history to reconcile you to himself. Do you see that the sacrifice wasn't just a man, but the Word who was with God in the beginning? The eternal Word who was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. Do you see that without it, we would have no expectation whatsoever of mercy and forgiveness, no hope, no future, but now we do. And why? Well, it's because the cross is a historical event. It's historical truth. But it's also the clearest expression possible of the love of God. Now the point is, my friends, that in Christianity, love and truth belong together. You can't separate them. Now there are people, aren't there, who will say, you know, you believe in a God of rigid truth and I believe in a God of love. You've met people like that, I'm sure. Now, John is saying that is an absolutely absurd distinction. It's like saying, um, I believe in an aeroplane with left wings, and you believe in an aeroplane with right wings. Now, clearly, that's absolutely foolish. See, just as an aeroplane must have left wings and right wings in order to stay in the air, so in Christianity we have to keep God's love and God's truth together in our minds if we are not going to crash and burn spiritually. And there are two obvious implications. The first is that surely love like this demands a response. And if you haven't yet done so, I do want to challenge you to respond to God's love for you this morning. Imagine, if you will, uh, a boy and a girl. They've been dating for a while. Um, the boy has really gone out of his way to show the girl that his love for her is real. And then one day, uh, the boy gets down on his knee and he says to the girl, I love you. Uh, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Everything I have is yours and I want to look after you for the rest of my life. Will you marry me? And the girl says, well, that's really very interesting. Um, I'll make a note of that. Um, I'll go away and think about it and um, maybe I'll have some more questions and get back to you in due course. Now, how would the boy feel? We smile. But friends, some of us are talking to God like that. And maybe this morning, it's time for you to stop doing that and to sign the agreement of God's offer of love for you. And you could do it by saying something like this. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you for your sacrifice and for your gift of life. Please forgive me for my sins. I want to follow you 
from today onwards. That's the first application. There's a second. The second is that if you have experienced this love of God in your life, then you will start to show it to other people. Somebody who understood this better than most was a man called Walter Trobisch. I don't know whether any of you have heard of him. Uh, He was a pastor and a missionary who worked in Africa until his death in 1979. And he wrote a famous little book called I Loved a Girl, which is actually a, a collection of letters between himself and an African boy in his congregation. Uh, This boy had made love to a local girl and he'd written to the pastor, uh, Walter Trobisch, to tell him about it. And Walter Trobisch replied and said this, One phrase in your letter struck me especially. You wrote, I loved a girl. No, my friend, you did not love that girl. You went to bed with her. These are two completely different things. You had a sexual episode, but what love is, you did not experience. It's true, you can say to a girl, I love you, but what you really mean is something like this, I want something, not you, but something from you. I don't have time to wait, I want it immediately. This is the opposite of love, for love wants to give. Love seeks to make the other happy and not himself. Let me tell you, let me try to tell you what it really should mean, says Trobish, if a fellow says to a girl, I love you. It means, I will give everything for you and I will give up everything for you, myself, as well as all that I possess. I will live for you alone and I will work for you alone and I will wait for you. I will never force you, not even by words. I want to guard you, protect you and keep you from all evil. I want to share all my thoughts, my heart and my body, all that I possess. I want to listen to what you have to say. There is nothing I want to undertake without your blessing. I want to remain always at your side. Now that's agape love, isn't it? It's the love that should be there in our marriages, but it's also the love that we should be showing to other Christians. And that brings us to the third way in which God demonstrates his love for us. So we've seen the Father's initiative, we've seen the Son's sacrifice, and now thirdly, please notice, the Spirit's vitality. The Spirit's vitality. You'll find this in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. 
Now, as you know, our culture thrives, doesn't it, on visual stimulation. Uh, We prefer visual images to words. Uh, Many people would rather watch a movie than read a book. And so, when it comes to sharing the gospel, we've got a bit of a problem. Because God is invisible. John says as much, doesn't he, at the beginning of verse 12? No one has ever seen God. So we can't show people a photo or a movie. Interestingly, uh, John uses exactly the same phrase elsewhere. Um, In the first chapter of uh, his Gospel, he says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So God's solution to the problem of his invisibility was the incarnation. It's the message of Christmas. But today, we have a similar problem. Because Jesus isn't here anymore. He's at the Father's side. But John says, no, don't worry, God has a new solution for that problem. Look at verse 12 again. No one has ever seen God... But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now that last phrase is an amazing statement. What does it mean? Well, John is not saying that God's love at the cross was somehow defective and that you and I need to work hard to make up the shortfall. He's not saying that. He's saying that God's love achieves its purpose when Christians love one another. He's saying that when we love one another, the world gets to see something of the presence and character of Almighty God. What an awesome responsibility. But then why is it that John keeps repeating this love command so often in the letter. I spent a bit of time this week thinking about this. Here's my conclusion. You can tell me whether you agree with me afterwards or not. But when we read the rest of the New Testament, and in particular the letters of Paul, you and I realise that loving our brothers and sisters is taxing, it is difficult, and our human capacities for doing it are quite insufficient. The love we need has to come from God. can't come from anywhere else. So think of that passage that uh, Michelle read for us a little bit earlier in Colossians. There's Paul writing to Christians in a local church. Why does he have to say, bear with one another? Presumably, it's because at times, you and I can be pretty unbearable. Why does he have to say, forgive, as the Lord forgave you? (laughs) Well, it can only be, can't it, that we should expect that some of us in the local church are going to need to be forgiven on a pretty regular basis. And why does the Apostle have to say to Christians, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another? Well, surely it's because in a local church there will be real grievances. 
And that's why this love that John is urging us to show to one another has to come from God. And I think you see what John is saying in this passage is that when we find that we are loving and coping with one another, that is actually a sign that God is working supernaturally in the congregation. That the same Holy Spirit who drove out the unbelief from our hearts and minds in the beginning is actually changing us and causing us to love one another. And when the world sees that happening in a local church like St Barnabas, then God's love is achieving its purpose. It's being made complete in us. And hopefully visitors will be coming to St Barnabas this Christmas time. I certainly hope so. And wouldn't it be a marvellous thing if they saw this love at work in us. Let us pray. I think we'll have a moment of quiet. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are never less than perfectly loving. And you have lavished your love on us by sending your one and only Son into the world at the first Christmas. Please open our eyes to grasp the wonder of your love and grant us grace to make your love visible in the way that we love each other. We ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Well, the reason I asked Raymond to hold off lighting the Advent um, candle is that uh, when we look at these candles, it's a picture, isn't it, of light coming from heaven into the darkness of our world. And as Raymond lights three candles this morning, because it's the third Advent Sunday, we can just think about the fact that some of that light is the love that we show to one another here in this church family. And perhaps we can think about that as we respond to God's word in song.